I have two kind of connected ideas this morning that emerge from the two scenes or parts of the text. I think the first scene exposes a common, maybe even universal tendency to interpret life through the lens of the self. And I think the story that Jesus offers shows how part of what he does is he shows how the poor expose that inner life hypocrisy better than anything else, almost like nothing else can. The poor just expose that hypocrisy of self-centeredness. Jesus offers the story of the Good Samaritan in response to this interaction that he has with this expert in the law. And if we, if we don't investigate and take seriously that dialogue, that interaction, and we just try to deal with the story on its own terms, you run a very real risk of completely missing the point, the purpose, the meaning of that story of the Good Samaritan because what he's doing is responding to this interaction that he's having with this expert in the law who stood up to test Jesus with this question. It comes across not as an honest question that is open to learning, but as a measuring question with maybe no concern for real learning. And motivation is important. You see twice in this dialogue Luke offers us, when he's not offering us some things that we think would be important, he is offering us insight into motivation. And Jesus answers that first question, that first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he sees that it's a testing question, not an open, curious, inquisitive question, not a real learning question, but a measuring question of him. And Jesus does what he almost always does brilliantly. He refuses to actually answer it. He just offers another question. Well, what's written in the law? You see, the worst thing you can do for someone who isn't open to learning is actually answer their fake questions. And he responds not with an answer, but with more inquiry. What is written in the law? And the expert answers with the Shema, that, that, those lines from Deuteronomy 6.6, which he would have recited every single morning and every single evening ever since he was a boy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And he, a bit surprisingly, he adds to that this thing that we call, we know as the golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would want done unto you. And that actually, adding that to the Shema, putting those together, is actually something that we, we rarely see. The, the scribes, the Pharisees, the experts in the law, we rarely see them do. And, it, and it's actually uh, uh, so impressive that, that Jesus does something that he rarely does in these conversations with experts and, and his conversations with religious leaders. He says, you're right. <laughs> which is very rare for Jesus in these conversations with these people who are always trying to like trick him, test him, get him into enigma positions. He says, that's correct. That's totally right. Well done. You have answered correctly. Do that. Do that. And you will live. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do that and you will live. And by the way, he didn't say do that and you will inherit eternal life. He said do that and you will live now. Not like this distant thing, but you will step into life now. And at this point, the conversation can stop. Well done. Good answer. 
And you understand, like, the, 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 the history of the, the story of the Good Samaritan and all it's done in, like, the, the history of conscience and the ways that we talk about it and the, the ubiquitousness of how we understand it, none of that would happen. The story would not have happened if he would not have asked this second question. The conversation could have been totally done. What a great interaction we had today. Let's move on. But he asks one more little question that gets him into trouble. And who is my neighbor? And Luke, again, offers us this little additional detail to the motivation that that question was coming from, to justify himself. And who is my neighbor? To justify yourself is this this desire to want to prove your innocence, your righteousness before God, and therefore your intimacy, connection, reconciliation to God. And part of it is to to, to prove that truth, but also self-justification is not just to prove that truth, but to declare it over yourself and to declare it to the watching world. And that longing for self-justification, to, to somehow prove and be certain to yourself and to everyone else that you're, you're reconciled to God and you are righteous, holy, uh, in, in all things with Him together intimately, uh, part of that comes, can sometimes come from a place of insecurity, have no way to understand your own like value, worth, identity. You're, you have no way to understand yourself in, 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 in uh, uh, direction with God. And so you, you feel this need, like these abstract things, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go do that and you'll live. But that's not very concrete, you see. I'm not sure when I'm doing that. I'm not totally sure when I do that. I need it to be much more concrete so that I can be sure all the time when I'm in and when I'm out, when I'm doing that, when I'm not doing that. So who's my neighbor? Let's just be clear about this. Who is my neighbor? So that from a place of insecurity, you can be secure or, or sometimes self-justification comes from a place of you're fine, you're good, I'm righteous, I'm holy, I'm fine, I'm fine. I just need all of you to know how good I am. Like, I just need all of you to know, like, how excellent I am. So if we could have this formula that we understand where everybody's at, and I can show you, I can prove to you where I'm at on that formula, now you'll know. So part of it is wanting to justify yourself to declare it over yourself, and part of it is wanting to justify yourself just to declare it to the watching world. And when he asked this question, tell me who it is that I need to love, you've got to understand there's two sides to that question. And who is my neighbor could immediately mean I want to go find that person and love them and be a neighbor to them. But at the same time, that question also says, and who is my neighbor so that I know who I don't have to love? Because I can't go going, I can't be going around wasting, dispensing costly love on people in a way that doesn't always directly benefit me. No, 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 no. You tell me exactly who it is that's my neighbor. How can my love, how can costly sacrificial love, how can I ensure that all of that in the end benefits me? None of it's wasted. Many, many years ago, I heard Brian in a sermon mention the work of social psychologist named Harold Kelly, who in the 1960s did significant work on attribution theory, or what's better understood as self-serving bias. And the premise of his work is very, very simple, very basic. The premise of his work is that we tend to look at ourselves and all that we do as above average. 
And when you view yourself in that lens, when you have that lens of self as above average, then when events and circumstances happen around you that are positive, successful, good, excellent, wonderful, you will attribute the cause to those events and circumstances internally. You will do internal attribution of cause. And when things around you, events and circumstances are negative, painful, suffering, failure, anything like that, you will attribute the cause to those events externally. You will do external attribution. I, didn't, I had nothing to do with that. The classic examples are kids in like school and sports. When you come home with grades, you would say, I got an A. I earned an A. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, you could come home and say, my teacher gave me an F. My teacher earned me an F. Or you'd come home from a game and say, I won the game. Or you would come home from the game and say, we lost. We lost. The striker wasn't on point today. I don't know. I did my job. I did my job. Classic examples in adult attribution would be in the working world, I got a raise. I got a promotion. I got a, a strong performance review. Or my company fired me. My company didn't understand my value to this job. Or maybe you, you, you might imagine saying something like, I'm leading my microchurch super successfully, or these people are flaky and dysfunctional. <laughs> Did we go to a bad place? I thought we were in a safe place. Were we in a safe place? There was a study posted earlier this year, actually, by a guy named Aidan Gregg who discovered a scientist is willing to hold on to a scientific theory for, for through double the amount of contradictory evidence if that scientific theory was originally theirs. So a, a scientist will hold on, let's just say hypothetically, like, like the, the average amount of contradictory evidence that would defeat or cause a scientist to let go of a scientific theory is maybe like five pieces of strong contradictory evidence. What, what he's saying is a scientist will actually hold on to, cling on to, persevere with a scientific theory for, for sometimes beyond 10 pieces of contradictory evidence solely because it was their theory, it was their idea. He calls this the spot effect, spontaneous preference for your own theories, spot effect. You see, we have been, we have been trained, formed every single moment in this cultural milieu to see, perceive, experience, understand, interpret, and advance in this life through the lens of the self. What's best for the self, what's comfortable for the self, to persevere the self, even, his, even that expert in the law, even his first question to, to, to test Jesus with that first question is an assumption that he holds within himself the entitlement to decide truth, to determine truth through the grid of the self. I get to measure your answer and decide what is and is not true. I do that. And these cultural factors that we experience like consumerism and materialism and individualism, these factors, they don't actually create self-centeredness. They only just co-labor and advance it and accelerate it for us. Like people in the West and America, like we're, we're just worse. We're just a little bit worse. But the trick here, I think, with this story is being able to see the poisonous partnership that can be forged between self-centeredness and servanthood. That we often, when we use the term self-centeredness, we, we can often interchange, we use it interchangeably with selfishness. 
self-centeredness. And when, when I say self-centeredness, you might imagine in your mind acts that we would label as selfish, like greed or, or, or you know, uh, uh, arrogance. or We just attach that word with all these negative human tendencies. But I'm telling you, it is possible. It's extremely possible, just as likely, to be selfless to, to have the, act, the external activity in your life of selflessness and love and servanthood and at the same time be just as self-centered. You can actually do selfless things for the end goal of your own self-benefit. You can not do nice things to be seen or to feel like a good person. You can feed the poor as a harvesting of their stories to go share at your next dinner party. You can pray a prayer solely to achieve the goal of eternal life with no concern for the God who resides there. And this self-serving bias, this self-centeredness, this self-at-the-center of the lens through which you experience and operate and perceive life, this is the plight of the expert in the law, who knows the right answers, he had a great answer, but only wants to live and embody those answers in a way that is convenient and in the end self-benefiting. And this concern to be justified, this, this concern to know and to experience and to, and to formula and to be able to fulfill your own self-justification. It, it always creates this reality where, where uh, you, you try to make true something on the outside of your life that is not and will not be true on the inside, on your inner life, as long as yourself is the center of your whole existence. And this story from Jesus doesn't attempt to answer that question, who is my neighbor? Because the question doesn't deserve to be entertained. The story of the Good, the Good Samaritan answers the better question, the question that should have been asked, how do I become a neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor? And Jesus chooses, of course, a story of sacrificial love and mercy among the poor to expose that inner condition of this expert in the law. The priest and the Levite, of course, they would have responsibilities in the temple. Uh, they, they perhaps were concerned about their cleanliness. Uh, they were per, per, perhaps on their way running to something to do. Uh, they, they, they would have been maybe at risk of being, not being able to fulfill their duties. Uh, but in the end, the point of the story is to take this most shocking piece of the whole story. This, and the most shocking piece in that world, and should be, if we can, if we can wrestle with it, the most shocking piece for us would be that these, these, you know, these two characters, it's not that these two characters, this one guy was like, had this horrendous thing happen on the road. It's not that these two characters who should have been uh, maybe a little bit more generous and kind just walked by. It's not even that they walked by on the other side of the street and tried to avoid him. It's not exactly how much uh, the Samaritan did at the end of the story and, 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 and how exemplary his work was. It is, in, in essence, when the first century audience would have heard it, it is, in essence, the most shocking piece of this whole story is that the Samaritan is the hero. So many social contrasts, racial contrasts, so many issues being uprooted by the story. Samaritans, as you know, would have been half Babylonian and half Jewish, and therefore, uh, in, that, in that being kind of deemed and seed as half-breeds, 
and, and be, being, have, having, uh, being impure in their lineage, but still somehow having a, 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 a naming some claim at the history of the Jewish people, they were systemically hated. They were, uh, they were experiencing injustice, oppression, exclusion from the people of God, and they would receive it from both sides. And the two characters in the story who appear the most likely, the most likely, the most expected by any audience to know God, to be connected to God, to be in tune with, with who He is, to be like God in the world, prove not to be. That somehow these, these external realities that, that, they, that they held to, and that the first century audience would have held to, to say, this is what we expect of them based on these external realities, their, their status, their role, uh, the, how much they knew, their mastery of the law, none of that actually was enough. But actually, their, 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 something in their innards wasn't right. Their, their inner being wasn't somehow in line with that. And the one person in the story who you wouldn't expect to know God, who you wouldn't expect to understand Him, who you wouldn't expect to be connected to Him, who you wouldn't expect to be like Him, to be celebrated and exalted in a story like this, He is. That somehow the, 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 the external realities of His life scream that He should not be this type of person, but in his inner life, he is more like God. And it is left up to, to interpretation a bit to decide why those two, the priest and the Levite, didn't stop. It's unstated. And I think part of the reason is because it's not the point that somehow regardless, regardless of if they didn't stop because they were scared of being like ritually unclean or because they were super busy and they had to get something and they didn't want to let so-and-so down or they had some task to get to or because they simply did not care, which is also an option. I think regardless of actually the reason or the motive why they didn't stop, in the end, the point is that love is always in its very nature inconvenient. No matter what the reason is, I would actually venture to say that if you only love in moments where it is convenient, then you do not love. And this is how the poor always, more than anything else, have the potential to expose that inner hypocrisy because it is never more inconvenient to love than when the object of that love has nothing to offer you. And, and, it's, and it's never more inconvenient when sometimes you carry within yourself prejudices of why they don't even deserve it. They carry so much potential to expose that self-justifying hypocrisy in our inner lives because nowhere is God himself more utterly, utterly countercultural to the way of this world than in his evaluation and treatment of the least and the needy. And locked inside of this priest and Levite is an unwillingness to be inconvenienced for the sake of the needy. And that, no matter how much mastery you have over the written word, that is a drastic misinterpretation of the law and a drastic exit from the ethics of the kingdom of God. The priest and the Levite expose that corruption and self-interest of the religious establishment, that Jewish religious establishment.
that everything, everything that surrounded that religious establishment was, uh, had, had carried within it the potential to be good. I mean, liturgy, sacraments, praise, worship, reading, testimony, uh, uh, the ministry to, to, to the needy and the vulnerable. I mean, uh, the, the interpretation, the knowing and the inter- interpretation of the law, the, the ability to know God, be reconciled, all of that stuff has the potential. But once it immediately becomes corrupted by self-interest, it's all lost. It might be helpful here for a moment for all of us to just be honest, to just create like, okay, safe space for honesty. Let's all just like be, be like, say what we're really feeling, who we really are. You and I are more often than not the priest and the Levite. Yes, no. I mean, we, every, you, you're going to come across needs Every single, you have this turmoil, if you'll entertain it, you have this turmoil every single week, maybe even every single day. Do I, do I just hijack my schedule to meet this need that I come across? And more often than not, I, I, would, I would venture to guess, more often than not, we don't. And it's just, it's just better if we can just be honest about that and enter into the text and receive from Jesus a word about that. If we can say in this story, if I'm anyone in this story, I, 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 I think I'm a priest and a Levite and receive something from him today. I mentioned back in the fall, um, you know, during a talk, I mentioned, I think, I think we all experience these moments on like a, a, a weekly basis, but you probably don't remember all of them, but I, I, I would guess that every single one of you in this room have maybe one or two moments in your life that you remember that cause you guilt because you came across a need and moved on. I bet you can remember one or maybe two. And I shared mine. I mean, again, we, we have these moments all the time, but one of the ones that sticks out to me is that moment uh, that I shared about last year where, where it was my, my wife and I's first Christmas together. And it's the one, every time I read, every time I read this story, I think about it. And I, we, we, wanted to decorate our little duplex apartment with lights, and we thought it was like a fun thing to do on a Sunday afternoon, and so after church, we went to Big Lots to get $1 lights because we saw this little ad in the paper, and we're cheap, and so we went there, and the, the, lights, were, the lights were solar-powered lights, so they have this little, this little square panel thing that you would attach to your like gutter, and then you would, you'd have like six feet of light, maybe, maximum, and, uh, you, and then over, after an entire day of light, at about six o'clock when the sun went down, they would light up for about 20 minutes, and, and I would tell, like, we got them up, and, and that, that first week, I was calling people, like, come see our lights, you have to come at six, please come at six, please come at six to see our lights. We go to Big Lots, we get like four or five bo- little boxes of these lights, and we pack up, and it's when, by the time we got out, it was about five o'clock, and I was just in, the reason I was in such a rush, if you could experience, if you could just dive into the insanity of this, I, I was so rushed because I, I wanted to get them home and installed and maybe try to get 20 minutes of sunlight and they just see, just see what they look like, flicker on for like 30 seconds and just see what they look like. I wanted to beat six o'clock. I wanted to beat the sun. And so I was in like this mad rush. We have to get home. I have to work on these. I have to put them up. And we pull out of big lots and we're like coming down this road a couple blocks away. And there's this woman with her two kids on the side of the road, cardboard sign. And the, and the sign doesn't say, give me money. It doesn't say, it doesn't say we're hungry. It doesn't say anything like that. All it said was, I just want to provide presents for my kids. That's all it said. That's all it said. I just want to like give a Christmas to my two kids. Can you help? 
and we come up and we're, there's like a little bit of like a traffic line, like four or five cars. And so we're like, you go a little bit at a time, and she, I mean, she's still right there. You go a little bit at a time, and she's still right there. And Jamie and I just had this mutually complicit silence. Where it was like, you don't want to mention it. I don't want to mention it. We both see it. We're both in total inner turmoil right now. We both really want to go home and see these lights. We don't have a lot of time right now. We're in a big rush, because it's very important. And it, is, it brings me great, it is the peak story for me every time I read this story because we did not stop. And the, the contradiction of choosing not to stop so that we could rush home to look at lights for 10 seconds in order to celebrate the death of Christ Jesus in a manger, the insanity of that contradiction has stayed with me for years. Six years now. Can't tell you how many times I approach a major intersection in this city and drive straight into that inner turmoil, don't you? I'm already three minutes late. I'm still five minutes away because I still don't know how to judge traffic in this town, and so I never leave at the right time, and then people are tired of me telling them that the traffic was bad because they think I'm lying, but I'm really just trying to figure it out, and I'm late, and I don't want, and I don't want them to get mad, and there's this person, and I don't know what to do about this. Every single major intersection. And I, listen, I have come up with a, with a way that I, because I also have this conviction about, a, you know, that's, that, that makes conflict here because I have a conviction about not just giving someone a quarter and then experiencing the dopamine relief of I'm a good person and moving on, but treating people like human beings. So I, I also don't feel like I'm allowed to just do that or whatever. So I, I, I have created this way that I, that I, uh, I feel like, you know, Jesus just kind of like gave me this way to just deal with each of those situations to a degree, and then some of them are different. And I was thinking about telling you about that, but I'm not going to. You know why? I'm not going to tell you about that because some of you in this room, not all of you, would then go and justify yourself. You think, oh, that's the code. We cracked the code. We can just go do this and be right with God now. And I think the, 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 the better thing to do, it's the same reason why when, when, you know, back in college ministry, when students would ask me, how far can I go with my girlfriend and still be cool with God? I would never answer that question. Because what are they going to do? Within 24 hours, whatever you said. And they're going to be like, we're cool with God, whatever. And I never answer the question, how much money should I give and how much, how much stuff can I have or whatever. Because it's like, you're just going to go justify yourself. And the better question to ask is, how do I, uh, God, how do I steward my resources? And, 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 and you have to lead me. You, you have to help me understand it. God, uh, what does it mean to, to, to honor you with my body? And you have to lead me. And you have to, do, do, to help me deal with these, these complexities. And this issue, this, this daily turmoil that we have with daily needs, it, it cannot be solved by a formula. You cannot justify yourself. You have to be in relationship with the living, complex uh, leadership of Christ Jesus. Especially in a time with increased globalization when like now you can go on your face. I mean, is it, you can go on your Facebook and you can encounter every need in the world. Can't you? I mean, your life is riddled with the encounter of need. Always the encounter of need. Where do you stop? Where do you let it interrupt your life? Where do you not? I would just offer you just, just this question. If, I mean, if you walk away today with one question, I would just offer you this. 
Do you find yourself occasionally late to or canceling things because the needs of the poor have interrupted and hijacked your life? If not, you're probably not being like God. Based on previous critiques of Jesus upon the religious elites of that day, I think, if you just allow me the imagination, I think there might be one scenario in which the priests and Levites maybe would have stopped. If we adjusted the scenario a little bit, I think there's one thing that maybe would have made them stop, and I think that's if there would have been more witnesses there to see it. Jesus is always getting after them about practicing their righteousness in front of people, but never in the quiet. And I think the inconvenience of love can sometimes become quite convenient when it wins for you the applause of others. And I think the challenge of this story isn't just about proving to be the type of person who embraces the inconvenience of sacrificial love, but also to be someone who embraces that inconvenience when no one's around, in the quiet of your own life. Who are you when no one is looking? That's who you are. Let it be a warning to some of you leaders in the room, embrace this warning with me, that when everything that you do for God and for the poor is seen and praised by others, you, over time you can get in trouble. There can be things happening in your inner life that you're just not even aware of. When all the love, all the ministry, all the servanthood that you do for others is always seen and praised and applauded by people. There should be some stories that never make it into the next sermon or the next newsletter, but they remain in the quiet. Worship team, if you'd come up, I just want to close with this, this final kind of word that Jesus offers this expert in the law after the closing of the story. And this guy sits in the, the wake of that story and is asked, who showed, who, who, who proved to be a, a neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor? And he knows, I don't know if you caught this, but he knows the answer to the question, but he actually refuses, he still refuses to, to, to say the Samaritan. That's how hard this story was to receive to admit that the Samaritan was the hero to the story. So instead of saying the Samaritan, he says the one who showed mercy. And he's, I think he's open, he's receiving, he's listening. And Jesus just offers him this final word, go and do likewise. And I just think, if you're feeling like more often than not, I'm a priest of Levite, I, need, I, I, I want my inner life to become more like God. I want my heart to become more like God. I want my life to be more disrupted and interrupted and convenienced for the sake of the needy. I just want to receive this word together this morning to go and do likewise. Go and have mercy on people. And what does that even mean? I mean, it's like the one who showed mercy. Okay, go and do likewise. Again, still, that's not, that doesn't seem very helpful, practical, right? What does that even mean? Do I have to go and treat people's wounds and carry them to safety and put them on a donkey and pay for their hospice and promise to return every single person? Is that what that means? How do we be faithful to this text with so much daily need? How do I go and do likewise? I would just offer that the, this Samaritan, this unlikely hero, when he saw this man, the text says, when he saw this man, he took pity on him. 
And I, I actually like, in the original language, the turn of the phrase, he had compassion on him. When he saw this man and when he noticed this man, he had compassion on him. Yes, he treated wounds. Yes, he carried him to safety. Yes, he paid for his hospice. Yes, he promised to return. But the core difference, the core difference between the Samaritan and the priest and the Levite actually, actually has very little to do with all the activity that came out of it and everything to do with the initial embodied inner reaction to seeing this man, to noticing this man. He was moved to compassion. Compassion has so much less to do with knowledge and mastery, status and title, and so much more to do with your inner life. Go and do compassion. Can you? Can you? Can you really? Go be compassionate. It's not necessarily on your own that you renew your inner self to be more like God, to, to renew your heart to be more like God, to, for your heart to break over what God's heart breaks, for you to love in a way that God loves, for you to feel as God feels. That's not actually entirely in your domain, but you can be confident that God is actually right now living in you, doing that work. He wants to do that work. He wants to make you more like Him. He wants to move you to compassion for those whom He loves. He wants to stir you to, 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 to love and to serve the needs that come across your way. He wants to do that work. It would just go a lot faster if you pay attention. Go a lot faster if you, if you co-labor with him in your inner life. If you, if you sit with him, rest with him in your inner life. If you discern with him in those moments of need. Don't, don't just, when you get to those moments of need, start to calculate in your mind, what's the cost here? Just ask God. Is this one whom you've sent me today? My day is yours. I will cancel everything. Is this one whom you've sent me today? When God forms in you his compassionate heart, it washes away the inconveniences of that love. And it's not that the love suddenly becomes convenient for you. It's not that that inconvenience leaves. It just no longer has power over you anymore. Compassion moves us out of the center of our own lives, how we see the world, how we understand reality. And, it, and in that void in your life, when you step out of the center in that void, God will immediately rush in. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to bring the poor and the needy with him to the center of your life. The invitation of the story to go and do likewise isn't simply to do good works. It is not simply an invitation into, uh, uh, you know, works of righteousness. It's, it's an invitation into the merciful heart of God to be more like God. It's an invitation into self-forgetfulness, an invitation to knock ourselves out of center, an invitation to be like God in the embrace and the, of the consistently costly love among the poor and the needy and the least of these. Will we go and do likewise. Will we go released from those chains of self-justification, knowing that my love for others doesn't ultimately end with me? It doesn't have to ultimately benefit me because it doesn't need to anymore. Because Jesus has won for us on the cross in his death and in his resurrection, he has won for us a better justification. 
He has won for himself the center of our lives, and he's bringing with him the poor and the needy and the least of these. And we no longer have to do these things out of pursuit of justification, closeness with God, righteousness. It no longer has to be poisoned by that sense of obligation, but we are now free from that need to justify ourselves because we rest in what he's done for us. And now we get to go, not even caring about how things make us feel or, or, or what they do for us. We get to go free, liberated by that work he's done for us. You see, on that night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And When you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And this morning when we eat it, we remember that none of this life anymore is about us. He won that for us. Without him, without the, 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 the brokenness of this body, we would have to try to justify ourselves, but not anymore. Not anymore. You've been freed. And in the same way, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. And when you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. And so this morning, I invite you to come to this table to receive that liberating righteousness from Christ Jesus and to come away from this table longing, begging, desperate for and receiving the heart of God in you for the city and for those to whom you are sent. When you're ready, the elements given for you.